The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on ABC News and columnist for The New Daily. And I'm James Thompson, senior Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. Uh, in the cafe again, uh, with uh, someone warbling in the background. I don't know who that is. Yeah, but, uh, well, I'm, I'm not sure either, Alan, but it's quite pleasant. Uh, so it's quite pleasant. Good to have a soundtrack. Now, um, you spent most of yesterday, or a large part of yesterday, listening to or watching the uh, appearance in the Senate yes. of Richard Goiter and Vanessa Hudson at Qantas. Yes. Um, so uh, did you come to a conclusion about why Richard Goiter's hanging on? I think Richard Goiter's hanging on because he thinks it's the right thing to do, basically. I mean, Goiter is – his big thing is to be calm and considered, right? So he doesn't want to jump off the boat midstream. Um, he'll need a reason to do that. He says that the, um, shareholders. the shareholders are all, you know, behind him. Yep. And do you think that's correct? I think it's correct for the moment. But I wonder if it will eventually change. You know, we've seen Qantas shares are down about 20% since the middle of August. And there's a lot of fund managers out there who say Qantas is dirt cheap. You know, it's trading on a price-to-earnings valuation of five times, still the dominant player in the market, travel demand still huge. It's going to record a pretty big profit next year. So that looks cheap. So if the shares don't start to reflect that, if the shares don't rebound, then I reckon there might be some investors who say, Richard, we need another circuit breaker. And you're it, my friend. Right. And the other group of shareholders who need to be considered here are Woodside shareholders. Goiter is the chairman of Woodside. It might be that Woodside shareholders say, hey, Steering a fossil fuel oil and gas company through the energy transitions, pretty full on, Richard. Maybe you don't need to be running an imploding um, national carrier as well. So, look, I think he's, he's got the confidence of shareholders for now, but it could that, that could change. So the, the hearing was about the Qatar decision to, yeah. to deny Qatar an extra 28 flights yes. or, uh, into Melbourne, into Australia. Um and uh, it was interesting that Goiter and Hudson were able to say, listen, we didn't talk to Catherine King. Yep, wasn't us. Government. Wasn't <laughs> us. We had nothing to do with it. But as you pointed out in your Shana Clear column this morning, the bloke who probably did speak to Catherine King wasn't there. <laughs> he wasn't. Uh, which is Alan Joyce. Yes, he's, in, he's uh, overseas in Ireland um, on his long-planned trip back to home. Um, so, yes, we didn't get the complete picture, but it did allow Hudson and Goiter to effectively say, a, it wasn't us, and B, it wasn't our decision. Ask the government why they made this call. You know, we put a submission in in October. We didn't like the idea, but, hey, you wouldn't expect us to like the idea. So so I thought that, I mean, just reading about it and listening to it, but, but it, I, I, it, it struck me that the uh, Goiter and Hudson session was boring. But what was interesting was Sims' session. Yes. Rod <laughs> Sims, the former uh, chief of the ACCC, who, who informed us that Air Coordination Australia, which – organises the slots into Australian airports, is controlled by Qantas and Virgin. 
Yes. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that either, I must confess. So they own 76% of this company that controls the slots, right? Or decides and, how they're distributed. And Sydney yeah. Airport is complaining loudly about hoarding of slots by Qantas and Virgin. Yes. Um, which, I mean, slots are really important. So I think it's incredible that, yeah. the, two, that the two airlines have control of um, the comp- basically got control of competition. And look, th- th- this, is a, this is a shocker in all respects. Peter Harris, the former Productivity Commission chairman, he did a review of this in 2020, in the middle of the pandemic when the airports were closed, great time for review, delivers it to the government in 2021, the Liberal National Government, the Coalition, and the Coalition and now Labor have sat on this review for two years. It's a specifically a review of slots. Of how it? slots should be managed. Right. And it basically says, let's, rev- let's rip up the system, s- start again. We don't want a system where, you know, slots can be hoarded by, the, by strategic cancellations. Uh, we need to open this up. Sydney Airport's the most important airport in the country because all the transport routes go through there. So we, we've got the tool. We've got the, the document that says how to fix this. Just no one wants to fix it. Yeah. it, it is absolutely bizarre. I mean... It's one of those, I mean, Sims called it a failure of public policy. Totally right. Totally. Totally right. Just bizarre. And the other thing that happened, I think yesterday or the day before, was PwC. Yesterday, yeah. Now, Switkowski, I mean, look, as an Essendon supporter, I kind of see a bit of uh, (laughs) symmetry here. Yes. (laughs) Well, Ziggy did the the report on Essendon after the drugs thing. And, and both it, times, with Essendon and PwC, he's found that there was a whatever-it-takes culture, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. I mean, this is the great thread that has run through every organisational scandal for the last decade. You think of the Banking Royal Commission. You think of the casinos. Again, Ziggy was the chairman of Crown for a little while as well. What is the thread? It is an overt focus on profits at the expense of... Anything else? Yeah, well, in, in, in Essendon's case, it was an over-focus on winning. Yeah. But yeah, yes, yeah. But, same I mean, thing. At, at PwC, it was revenue growth and market share. Same thing, you know. I mean, what I find hilarious about this is that PwC is one of the great lecturers in Australian business. You know, go, go, jump on the PW website and you'll find oodles of reports of, you know, themes from the Royal Commission. Here's where how directors need to ensure they you know, retain their moral and ethical compass. I mean, why didn't PwC take its own advice and just figure out, hey, we're at risk of this too. In fact, the risk at PwC is greater because it's a partnership. How do partnerships work? By being nice to everyone else. The the challenge and the questioning and the criticism is less in a partnership. No, but I thought the, the bit of his review that was kind of, I think, the sharpest and most interesting was the power of the CEO. Yeah. And there's a section, he just talks about that in relation to the partnership. So uh, it's quite different to a board yep. situation because the CEO is voted by hundreds, like six or seven hundred partners. And once, he's, once he or she is in as CEO, it's very difficult to do anything about it. Yeah, um, Whereas a CEO who's appointed by a board can be sacked pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah, and so the the, the he's saying uh, Swiskowski is saying that the CEO of a partnership like that, uh, and I guess it applies to all the other big partnerships as well, mm. is much more powerful. Yeah, yeah, I think which I think is interesting, and and I think yeah. you know it's it talks about a 
uh, flaw, basic flaw with the partnership model. Yeah, I think there's a few basic flaws with the partnership model. That's one of them. I think the 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 fact that you sort of have to be a brown noser to get anywhere is another. Um, and the fact that everybody has a say is sometimes a hindrance too. You know, everybody has an ownership stake and everybody has a say. At times of crisis, that can make it difficult for you know quick decisions to be made. That's the that's the story of PwC this year. Yeah. But That's yeah, it's right. fascinating. I mean, I just find it so ironic. I mean, PwC can be quite haughty about about the way it lectures everyone else, and here it is. I think you're falling t- into the same traps. I think PwC's days of haughtiness are over. Don't <laughs> yeah, you think? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and, and and in some ways, like Switkowski's got twenty three recommendations, and they're all I think they're all sensible stuff about imp- independence and decision making. The big thing here is that they've all been found it to be naughty boys and girls and that is what will stick with this place that is what will shape this place yeah yeah what what do you think of the acquisition i can't remember the the private equity firm that's bought the allegro allegro that bought it for a dollar yeah do you think that's going to be one of the great acquisitions of all time uh not sure i think it's too early to say i mean allegro is a firefighter private equity firm so they go into the most difficult situations buy things really cheap and hope for a return. So, you know, they're they're the punters of private equity in a way. They're not, you know, they've got very good systems. They've done this before, lots of examples. So I don't think it's a sure thing. I still think um, how do government departments trust the consultants again is the big question for me. That That's going to be uh, – that's the hill they need to get over. Now, maybe – Government departments have been so hollowed out, they've got no choice but to trust consultants. So, you know, this new business sign will will, will actually find a way to make good money. But, yeah, I think that remains to be seen. Which presumably Allegro's plan will be to sell it in five, or, five years' time or yeah, something. Yeah, I, I, I imagine, yeah, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years' time might be one that takes a bit longer to sort out. Yeah. Let's move on to questions, eh? Okay, let's do it. Daniel says, thank you for keeping me sane on my weekly marathon training runs. I hope it's not a a difficult task keeping you sane, Daniel. (laughs) (laughs) With all the hullabaloo about how many houses we need for the future hordes of population growth and how much it'll cost to build them all, is there any potential in the federal government acting as a sole or majority purchaser of basic construction materials like concrete, copper, wire, plasterboard, lumber, steel? This would bring down purchasing competition among construction firms. With the government bearing the risk of purchasing, does this have legs or am I being idiotic? Well, you're being certainly being idyllic, Daniel. Yes. Uh, and I don't think it's got legs at all. No, I think this is a, uh, a idea in late in the marathon training run <laughs> where uh, Dan's um, – the oxygen's not quite getting – no. Look, it, uh, it, it is an idyllic idea. Maybe that could work. But the government's not great at no, no, purchasing stuff. No, no, they're not going to. They're going to do it, and even if they did, it wouldn't work. Yeah, I mean, we've just given the example of the airline slots. Even when the solution is presented to them on a silver platter, they still can't do it. Yeah. So, yeah. and you know, you know what, Daniel? You know who they'd give the job to? PwC. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> no, well, now it would be Deloitte, <laughs> Deloitte or EY yeah, or something. That's right. That's yeah, right. you're right. Exactly. <laughs> 
Um, Jason says, can you please help me understand what happened to my collection house shares? The shares were frozen for several months, then the company was purchased, and then all my shares disappeared. I've no received no correspondence from Collection House or Credit Corp. I understand this was always a risk, but I was expecting at least a letter explaining what was happening. Well, I'm afraid, Jason, that your Collection House shares are worthless. Uh, Credit Corp bought the Collection House business, not the company, the business, for $11 million. Collection House collapsed last year, owing $18 million. Right. Okay, That's so a gap. There's a gap there, <laughs> and that gap means, Jason, that... The equity, that is to say your shares, are not worth anything uh, and you still own them, but don't worry about it. Just use it for wallpaper or whatever. Or a tax loss? Oh, I suppose. Yeah. They're certainly worth nothing. So whatever you bought them for, they're they're a tax loss. Yeah, Yeah. sure. Yeah. That's right. Susie says, thanks for adding a female listener question in last week's podcast. In fact, we've got a few females coming in, Susie, so thanks for sparking that Getting that going. Michelle Bullock, in her maiden speech as Governor of the Reserve Bank, mentioned that unemployment and the climate will be factors she'll be considering in determining rates. What KPIs of environment should would she be looking at when it comes to monetary policy? I think the big ones. So uh, the unemployment rate itself, underemployment, and things like and, and, and all the wages metrics uh, will be important to Bullock. So you know, average hours, pay for average hours worked and those sort of things. What she doesn't want to see is wages uh, jumping from here too far because that will put pressure on inflation. What she does want to see, unfortunately, and, you know, don't – people shouldn't be thinking that she's trying to – wishing people out of a job, but she does want to see probably a, a, an uptick in unemployment such that a bit more heat comes out of the economy. Yeah, I think Susie's referring to the fact that yeah, it was her first speech and she made her first speech about climate change, yeah. which was interesting. And I think, uh, although mostly it was pretty standard, you know, climate change is a big deal kind of stuff, Yeah, she did say, I think, that it's expected that climate change will be inflationary. Yes. So, uh, so And she didn't really say what she's going to do about that, but it's interesting to question. So, because uh, raising interest rates is not going to deal with climate change. No, no. One, one KPI in the environment, Susie, after giving lots of KPIs on the unemployment, I reckon the KPI on the environment she'll look at, insurance premium rises. Oh, yeah. That is one that fe- obviously feeds through to inflation quickly and is a real potential issue. I, I was reading the other day in America some uh, – House insurance premiums are up forty to fifty percent in some areas. Yeah, yeah. Well, they are here too. Yeah, and and that is an issue that I, sure. I reckon Bullock would be worried about. Hmm. Pat, Pat. Uh, recently, mid September twenty three, I extracted the twelve month term deposit rates for thirty two Australian banks, and found that the average rate being offered was on a twelve month term deposit was four point six three percent. It was only a few months ago that the majority of these banks were offering 5 to 5.25% for the same term, even some as high as 5.5. So based on this data, does this mean the banks are betting that the RBA will be cutting rates by 0.25 to 0.5% within a year? Uh, no. No. I think, well, what, I think what this speaks to, Pat, is that term deposits are a supply and demand market like anything else. A few months ago, the banks were looking to refill their funding uh, funding pools as 
the cheap debt they got from the RBA during the pandemic rolls off. They were competing for deposits very hard back then. I reckon this just says that the competition for deposits has slightly eased. Yeah, yeah. But also they, f- t- they tend to fund their term deposits in the bond market by uh, borrowing money yep. that matches the length of the term deposit. And yeah, okay, yep. So, yep. you know, uh, the market is betting that rates are going to come down. It's not, yes. so, it's not so much the banks. Yeah. The banks, uh, the banks don't really bet anything yeah. on, on anything. I mean, the, the market is betting, I think, on balance that there's going to be some rate cuts next year. Yep. And that's being reflected in the funding of the, the funding costs of the, reserve, of the banks. Maybe we could ask Alan for Pat to do the spreadsheet in another month's time because we've seen bond yields skyrocket in the last week or so. Yeah, it's true. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether term deposits match that uh, and how, yeah. how the banks respond there. Glenn says, um, with all the company complications of the RBA's restructure, why don't they just release dot plots like the Fed? Oh. No more magic. Putting verbal talk just transparently what each member estimates, noting that anonymity is preserved. I, I agree. I reckon they should Do you reckon? release the dot plots. I think the dot plot's great. I love the dot plot. You love the dot plot. Oh, yeah. But, but I mean, does it? Uh, the dot plots are, are even magic a magic pudding, aren't they? What like everyone mean? stares at these dot plots as if there's some, you know, we probably magical ex- formula. We probably should say what the we dot should. plot is, yeah, which so, is that yeah. they, the, the Federal Reserve uh, has 19 members on its monetary policy committee, which is called the Federal Open Market Committee. Hmm. And whenever they meet, each member has uh, makes a prediction about what they think interest rates are going to be next year, the year after, and the year after that. Yep. And then each prediction... Uh, is is shown as a dot with that's uh, um, uh, anonymous. Yeah. On a on a sheet, yeah. and so uh, you can see what the members of the FOMC are all thinking is going to happen to interest rates. Their predictions, not yeah. actual saying what they're they intend to do. Intense, yeah. They just well, they are forecasts, but they're not intentions. Yeah, sorry, yeah, not th- formal forecasts. No, so, so yeah. Anyway, um, and look, I think it's interesting, and, and the the market tends to take. Real notice of it. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it is a bit of magic <laughs> putting verbal talk, though. It's just because it, it gets so much interpretation. But look, yeah. wouldn't hey, more information is always better. Uh, ben says, do high interest rates really reduce spending? If for every loan there is a lender and a borrower, then as rates go up, the lender gets more money to spend and the borrower has less to spend. But overall, there's the same amount of money out there to buy goods and services. In fact, higher interest rates may mean business borrows less to invest in making more products. So you might have the same amount of money chasing the same or less products, thereby increasing inflation. What's the argument that high interest rates make inflation go down? Well, it's simple. It's quite simple, uh, Ben. Um, When interest rates go up, those who borrow cut back more than those who save increase their spending. Uh, You're right that that it has... Two thirds, two two thirds of Australia own a house. One th- uh, half of the two two thirds, that is to say, one third of Australians are borrowers, uh, and their cutbacks are greater than the winners. I mean, the savers win out of higher interest rates, um, but they don't increase their spending by the same amount as the borrowers cut back. Yep, it's as straightforward as that. Yep, it can work with lags, but it does eventually work. Oh yeah, it yep. works, absolutely. I think we might move on to Mia. Go Mia, for it. 
I'm both female and starting year 12 economics. So I guess in response to last week's commentary about diversity, I tick two boxes. You do, Mia. I was wondering if you could comment on what on, what on earth world economies will look like in 10, 20, 50 years. I'm thinking an incredible rise in pharmaceutical powers across the world economies as diseases and illness explode in the volatility of increasingly extreme climates. Furthermore, if all this is the case, food insecurity, extreme climate, extreme air pollution, will we be eating lab-grown hydroponic food cultivated by AI (laughs) and use of electromagnetic levitating pods, making all our current infrastructure largely redundant? I just can't see long-term stability in the equity markets or in any of the production factor markets apart from land and property. Question is, really, if we're waiting on the collapse of the economic system as we know it, how long will it take? I'll be interested to hear from you both. I'll be interested to know what you say about that. Do we have a prize, Ellen, for the question of the year? Because this is it. (laughs) This This is it. What a great question. I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot recently because I reckon there's like a few really big forces in the last year. So AI is one of them. Uh, These obesity drugs that have uh, shot to prominence are, are another one. And... You know, higher interest. So, so the deglobalization that we're going through, and then of course climate change, the energy transition. So, I think Mia's right. I'm not sure there's going to be a collapse of the economic system in uh, 15, 10, 20, or 50 years, but it is possible to see a world where inflation is generally higher because there's less people, there's more costs associated with climate change, whether that's adapting to climate change or trying to you know, introduce green energy. There's more insecurity from a geopolitical standpoint, so things get more expensive. So if we've got that higher inflation and and uh, interest rates have to remain higher, that should, to, to Mia's point, create volatility in equity markets and economies. You know, we might get these lots and lots frequent periods where interest rates are very high or very low as the sort of economy adjusts to these short-term shocks. And I think Mia's right. What what will go well? What what assets will be important in those in in that sort of environment? Real assets, actual stuff you can hold, you know, land, property, real assets will be important. I think some in, a lot of infrastructure will still be important. So I think Mia's solved it for us. Real real assets over financial assets. I sure. mean, the last no, I think 50 that's a, years has I think been that's about really financial assets. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the last 50 years because I've been thinking about this question in relation to, okay, well, what, are we, what would we have thought in 70, 1973? Yeah. And then before that, 1923. Now, if, if you'd have said to somebody in 1923, in the, during the next 50 years, there's going to be a Great Depression and – Another war, yes. They would have, you would have said, "Well, crikey, the world, the world's going to be totally different in fifty years," you know. Uh, but it wasn't really. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we had those things: the Great Depression and the war. But the economy was more or less the same. Yeah. I mean, the thing that changed in the fifty years after nineteen twenty-three, the big change was cars becoming completely affordable mm. thanks to Henry Ford. Yeah. So. So the thing that really kind of, it seems to me, that really changed the world economy the most in those 50 years was was cars. And then you look at 73 and you think, well, in 1973 there'd just been the first oil shock and, uh, you know, uh, Nixon had just ended the, uh, the tying of the US dollar to gold and, you know, you would have thought, well, the world's going to change enormously. Yeah. 
you know, but it sort of hasn't. Um, the the big change that seems to me that's occurred in the past fifty years is the internet and yes. social media, yep. and so our lives have changed. You know, we've now got this device in our pockets that does everything for us all the time. You know, I mean, it's not that old. It's not. It's obviously a lot less than fifty years. But so that's. But the economy is kind of the same. Yeah. You know, it's like it's so. And, and the, the thing that has perhaps another thing that's changed is that. Central banks have kind of taken over, taken yes. control of the economy. This yeah. is in terms of what the economy does. Central banks are now running the show. Uh, they weren't then. Yeah. Whether that switches back towards governments running the show will be interesting. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. interesting. Um, but I, I do think I, I do think the big thing in the next 50 years is going to be climate change. Yeah. Yeah. I reckon within whether it's 10, 20 or 50 years, possibly 10 or 20 uh, we'll be thinking and talking about nothing else but climate change. It's yeah. going to be it's going to be everything. It seems to me. Yeah, and that's going to create real winners and losers. Yeah, real winners and losers. So exactly. But yeah, it's a great question, man. <laughs> Terrific. Uh, whose turn is it? Yours. I can't remember now. Oh, Joseph says I think the rate cuts undertaken by the RBA in 2016 and 2019 deserve a more balanced discussion. In its mission statement, the RBA targets two to three percent inflation as well as full employment. Um, and the economic prosperity of the Australian people. Unemployment during this time was around 5.5%, above the mysterious Nehru, and too many people were languishing because of this. Look, I, I think that's a fair point, Joseph. I mean, I, I got stuck into the RBA for cutting interest rates in 2016 and 19 uh, to get the inflation rate up to 2%, and you make a fair point that, in fact, it wasn't just that, it was also unemployment being 5.5%, which they wanted to get down. So I think that's not a bad point. Yeah. Um, yes. Philip Lowe was really – he sort of became fixated on employment, I think, and, and you know, those rate cuts were designed to help employment. And then, you know, in March 2022, he was really focused on this historic employment marker, achieving that and sort of safeguarding it. So – yeah, I think that part of the mandate became more important to the RBA. Yeah. I mean, yeah, is it right or wrong? Um, Megan says, I'm a long-time listener of the, uh, of the Eureka Report podcast and I'd like to pull you up on something that was said in last week's episode regarding investing in private equity. Just to jog your memory, it was in relation to a listener <clears throat> asking whether or not they should invest in a super fund than invest in private equity. You said, I think this was me, said that investing in private equity is hard for the average punter. And usually people have to go through institutions like super funds. Yeah, well, it is. Come funds. on. <laughs> you know, she, she mentioned something called reach alts. Yes. And there which, are, there's which, a Pengana has a private equity fund as well. So, there, yeah, there are a few funds, but it's not, doesn't make, it's not easy. It's not easy. Um, and you do have to seek it out. But it, it, Megan's right, it is possible. But she makes the point that, Ever since that disruptor called COVID happened a few years ago, I'm seeing the need to diversify my funds into alternative assets. The stock market doesn't make any sense. Property is out of reach for a lot of people and crypto is just downright crazy. More people are interested in private equity. Can you please do a podcast on this topic? I'm not sure we're going to do an entire podcast on it. I'll leave that up to you, Alan. But it's an interesting point. The thing I would say, Megan, is I reckon we're coming into a really interesting time for private equity. Uh, it, it, private equity has flourished in the last two decades as interest rates have generally fallen. It is easier to make money out of private equity when you can borrow cheaply and use that money to pump up the, 
to, to as leverage to improve the performance of the business. I reckon it's going to be really interesting to see how private equity uh, goes with, at a higher interest rate. But the other question I think is, um, are more companies, to Megan's point, are more companies generally going to be, be stay uh, private? Will there be less companies, less good companies listing on the stock stock market because it's just harder? And I think that's probably right. And so more exposure to private equity is better. I still reckon super funds are the best way to do that because they have the scale. It's, it's a scale game. But Megan's right. There are alternatives yeah, to investing. Yeah, the problem, of course, is the super funds own a whole bunch of other stuff as well. So it's pretty diluted. That's a good, good note on which to end, do we think? Oh, yeah. What about the grand final? Yes, Alan. So what do you, you barrack for? I barrack for Collingwood. You do um, barrack for Collingwood, yes. yes. Oh, I, I'm very pleased to be doing this podcast because taking my mind off worrying about the grand final for a little while. But I just urge all our listeners to get behind the magpie cause this week. Um, I think it's the right thing to do for uh, the country what rubbish. and the economy. What absolute rubbish. No. <laughs> no there's more Collingwood members than Brisbane members. So if we win, we'll be happy and we'll uh, help grow the economy more. So it's a, it's a rational oh, so all the Also, all the kind of happy Collingwood members are going to go out and buy something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Probably starting with, you know... A beer 12 or two. or 15 beers <laughs> and then moving on to merchandise and all that sort of stuff. So this could be the late-year economic boost that Michelle Bullock has been looking for, Collingwood Victory. Uh, well, look, I'm uh, completely neutral, really. Uh, oh, being thanks, an Essendon supporter, I'm, you know, uh, I'm not certainly not going to barrack for uh, Essendon. Joe Danaher plays for Brisbane, so um, um, I've got a soft spot for him. Okay, I really appreciate so your I'm support not going on this, to, uh, So I'm not going to go either way, really. There you go. Well, you can note that, listeners, that Alan's uh, talking down the Australian economy by refusing to support <laughs> Collingwood. <laughs> well, thanks for listening, everyone, to today's episode of Money Cafe. I'll be back next week with Stephen Main. So if you've got a question, send it in to themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until then, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, etc. And I'm James Thompson, Senior Chanticleer Columnist at the Australian Financial Review and Nervous Collingwood Supporter.